Good morning, church. My name is Renal Oaks, and I will be doing the Bible reading this morning. The Bible reading is taken from the book of Philippians 4, from verse 10 to verse 13. That is Philippians 4, from verse 10 to 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. It's good to, it's good to be with you all. Just a few uh, matters of housekeeping before I pray and we come to this text. Um, let's start with the celebration. It is our 28th birthday today. Martin reminded me at the 8 o'clock service. Uh, That applause is for the Lord who has uh, been so faithful to us over 28 years, and I'll pray in a moment and give thanks to Him. Why don't I pray, and then we'll come to our passage. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful as we reflect on um, 28 years of your goodness to this local family of believers. We, we praise you, we thank you. Uh, we reflect on all the, the ups and downs, the highs and lows over the years, and just how you have been good to us in every single season. Uh, Father, you are always faithful, and we acknowledge your faithfulness this morning. We, we praise you for it. Uh, you, are, you are faithful when we are unfaithful, and we're so grateful to you, Father, for keeping us, for sustaining us, for blessing us in so many ways. And we pray that you would continue to do so. We pray that you would continue to do so even today. As we gather today, Lord, please will you speak to us through your word, as you have over the past 28 years. Please will you speak through your word today and in the power of your spirit and change us. Conform us to the likeness of Christ, we pray. Remind us that our King is King of every aspect of our lives including our money, Lord. So, a topic which is so difficult for us, Lord, something which knocks us off balance. Uh, we have so much disequilibrium when it comes to money. And so we, we, we ask for your help this morning. Please speak clearly. Speak clearly to us through your word and, and give us ears to hear. Cut our hearts so that we might respond in repentance and in faith and obedience. For Christ's sake, we pray these things. Amen. We live in the city of gold, don't we? The city of gold. This town has always been about making money, about get, getting rich. From the Rand Lords to the Saxon World Shabin, this town has always been about getting rich. People come here to get rich. I have, uh, as I was saying, we come here to get rich. I have one friend who I think is actually a lapsed Christian. Um, but he says it so straight. He says, my goal in life is to get filthy rich. 
I don't want to make money for someone else. I'm done with it. It's my time. I want to make money for me. And then when I'm filthy rich, then I'll give something back. Now, whatever you think about that, at least he's being honest. At least he's being honest about his ambitions. Because most people in Josie want exactly the same thing. Only we're too shy to admit it. We give it all sorts of polite names like aspiration or upward mobility. But really, we just want more. So if you are in Mamalodi, if you live in Mamalodi, you want to live in Midrand. If you live in Midrand, you want to live in Midstream. If you live in Midstream, you want to live in Melbourne or Madrid. We all want more. We all want more. And if we're honest, that's not just the people out there. That's in here. And that's in here. This is how StatsSA defines a middle-class standard of living in South Africa. So, someone who's in the middle class lives in formal housing with a water tap inside their dwelling, a flush toilet inside their dwelling. Electricity is the main source of light. It's also the main source of heat for cooking, electricity or gas. Access to a phone. If you are in the middle class, you will have access to a phone. Either a landline or one member of your household will have a cell phone. By that standard, I think it's fair to say just about everyone in this room is middle class. Let me ask you, are you happy with the middle class by that standard? We are not. We're not, are we? We don't want a water tap and a flush toilet somewhere in the dwelling. We want that in every ensuite bathroom. And yeah, we're happy cooking on gas, as long as it's Bosch or Wolf or Yuppie Chef. <laughs> happy with access to a phone, as long as it's 5G. We want more. And so we hustle. We are all hustling. Most of us have a side hustle. Many of us have a side, side hustle. Is it 5G? <laughs> I see the evidence of that hustle from my office, which overlooks the parking lot. I see it Monday to Friday. Parents hooting violently at each other while they drop their kids off at the Christian school. Angry because I've got to get out there and pay for this car. That's us, isn't it? If we are to define our city's relationship to money, we might sum it up like this. Discontentment. Deep discontentment. We want more. That's our city. But how is the follower of Jesus Christ supposed to relate to money? I think there are at least two parts to an answer in the Scriptures. At least these two themes. We're going to deal with one this week, and we'll deal with another one next week. Both parts, both themes, can be summarized in a single word. The first word is the word contentment. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are called to be content. 
And so that's my goal for this sermon. I want us to leave here with contentment. If you're already feeling guilty, that's not the goal. The goal is not guilt. The goal is contentment. My goal, because it's the Apostle Paul's goal as he writes to the Philippians, is contentment. Contentment. But what does that word mean? Contentment was an important concept in the culture of Paul's day. Uh, Here's one description of what it meant to be content, a description of how the Stoic philosophers would have defined it. They were so influential at the time. So here's their definition. Contentment describes the man of emotionless, wooden impassivity, the man whom nothing else could touch because in himself he found a completely satisfying world. In himself. To be content was to be completely detached from your circumstances. So detachment is a great synonym. It was to be utterly indifferent, utterly self-sufficient. Don't invest your passions in anything external, and then the external world can't hurt you. You see how it works? Don't index your emotions to your circumstances because your circumstances are so subject to change and to chance. Find your satisfaction in yourself, in your interior being, your interior life, and then your satisfaction will be stable. Relate to the outside world with cold, rational thought and indifference. Contentment means nothing can touch you or sway you because you're not attached to anything. That's what the culture of Paul's day had in mind if someone said the word contentment. But that's not what the apostle has in mind. You see, he he does what he so often does. He takes the word from the culture, baptizes it, redeems it, and puts it into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. So let me read again what he says about contentment. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul teaches us four things about contentment in this passage. Contentment starts with me. Contentment has to be learned. There's a secret to contentment. And contentment has two enemies. So contentment starts with me. It has to be learned. There's a secret to contentment. And contentment has two enemies. Contentment starts with me. There's one word in verse 11, so small that we can easily breeze past it, not even notice it, just miss it. It's that personal pronoun, I. Paul says, I have learned. He says, I. It's a small word, but it makes the world of difference. It means that contentment starts with me. Now, why is that important? It's important because when it comes to money and our relationship with money, we are all very quick to blame others. See, I would be fine. I wouldn't have a money problem if the world wasn't so unfair. I would be fine if society treated me fairly or my parents brought me up differently. I'd be fine. If the system was more equitable, I would be fine. I wouldn't have a money problem. If it wasn't for big business or trade unions or government, pick your constituency, 
there would be no issue. I would be completely satisfied. That's how we like to think. The problem is out there with those ones. You know those ones? We all have different those ones, by the way. But it's with those ones. That's the problem. Listen to Christian sociologist Jacques Ellul. This is what he writes. Whenever we talk about money, we always end up asking, how should we organize the economy? We explain, when the general money problem is solved, I, in turn, will become just. Thus, we subordinate moral and individual problems to the collective problem, to the total economic system. You want justice? Then establish my system. This is the error of all who think they can solve the problem without considering human nature. But it is more than an error. It is also hypocrisy and cowardice. For then ultimately, I ask no more than to believe the system builder. It is so convenient. I don't have to think about what I do. I don't have to try and use my money better, to covet less, to quit stealing. It's not my fault. All I have to do is campaign for socialism or capitalism. And as soon as society's problems are solved, I will be just and virtuous, effortlessly, without effort. My money problem will take care of itself. You see what he's saying? The problem is always out there. The world has a problem with money. True contentment does have profound social implications. So don't miss that. True contentment does have profound social implications, but it doesn't start there. It doesn't start there. It starts by recognizing that discontent is a problem that lives in me. The problem of discontent starts with me, and so contentment must also start with me. As Nelson Mandela said, one of the most difficult things is not to change society, it's to change yourself. When it comes to money, that's the challenge we face. We have, we, we have to be the change that we want to see out in the world. Changes from the inside out, one disciple at a time. Contentment starts with me. Secondly, contentment has to be learned. The Apostle Paul says in verse 11, I have learned to be content. In verse 12 he says, I have learned the secret. And secret is once again one of those words that he's borrowing from the culture, baptizing, redeeming, and putting into the service of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. So that word secret was a word that would have been used by the mystery cults to describe their initiation processes. So to be initiated was to learn the secret. And because initiation in those religious cults was often long, hard, and painful, Paul seems to be saying that learning contentment has been a long, hard, and painful process for him personally. Now, I think that's massively helpful and encouraging for us to know. Why? Well, first of all, because if you are walking up to the start line of a race, you want to know, you need to know that this race is a marathon, not a fun run. Okay, that's a detail you want before the gun goes off. You need to know that my 
slip slops and my denim shorts are not going to hack it. We make a massive mistake if we think our fight with discontent is going to be a fun run. It's a marathon. If you make that mistake, you will not finish the race. You will cheat, you will quit, you will lose. Secondly, it's helpful to know that even the Apostle Paul struggled with this problem. And that means if, if you and me, ordinary Christian, if we are struggling with the fight against discontent in our lives, well, welcome to the club. You are in good company. Now that we know what we're in for, how do we do this thing? How do we fight this fight? How do we run this race? How do we learn contentment? In the original Greek, the word learn is very close. It's got the same root as the word disciple. That's a helpful hint. That's a really helpful hint. It's going to help us unlock the secret of contentment. Paul's big reveal comes in verse 13. Pick it up halfway through verse 12. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the big reveal. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The secret of contentment is a person. The secret of contentment is Him who strengthens me. Jesus Christ. Now we can begin to understand what Paul is doing with the word contentment. This is not, this is not self-sufficiency. This is God's sufficiency. The idea isn't just less attachment to the world. The idea is more attachment to God. The idea is not just to love the things of the world less. The idea is to love God more. The idea is to seek first the kingdom and make the king your first love. Learning contentment is the journey of discipleship. That's what it comes down to. A lifetime of walking with Jesus. There is no other way to learn contentment. It's a lifetime of walking with Jesus. And to the extent that we begin to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, our circumstances will fade into insignificance. That's contentment. In our passage, contentment has two great enemies. The first one is fairly obvious. Obvious to us in the passage and in our, in our experience, in our surroundings, in our culture. Poverty. Poverty is an enemy of contentment. Paul has had to learn contentment in the face of hunger and need. He's had to learn contentment when he was brought low. How is poverty the enemy of contentment? I have no personal experience of poverty. And so I can only imagine. I imagine that being hungry day after day, night after night, leaves you feeling profoundly empty. And not just physically empty, spiritually empty. I imagine that it must feel deeply humiliating. There must be a feeling of being neglected, of being cheated, of being left outside, 
of being brought low, to use the apostles' words, feeling less than human. In short, deep discontentment. Now what can possibly overcome such a complex range and mix of emotions and experiences? What is going to fill that hole, that void? If I say Jesus, it's going to sound trite. It's going to sound like the Sunday school answer. But it's true. It's true. How could I possibly know? I've never known poverty for myself. I haven't known poverty for myself, but I have known some poor people. I've known some people, some, some poor people, some people on the margins who have learned this secret of contentment in Christ. Not perfectly, because as we've said, it's a journey, it's a lifelong journey. Not perfectly, but they've learned it in incredible, striking, humbling ways. So I knew one man from very, very humble beginnings. We had an opportunity to spend a weekend together to share accommodation. And it turned out that he had never used a shower. We were in our 30s by this stage. He'd never used a shower because he'd never had access to a shower. And so even on that weekend, in very ordinary middle-class accommodations, he washed himself with a face cloth in the basin. Now, he may have been poor, but he was one of those people, his whole body exuded the joy of the Lord. You know the type I'm talking about. He was just one of those people who just, who just radiates passion for Jesus. Despite his humble circumstances, he found a deep contentment that people who are going to sleep in the Michelangelo tonight will never, ever know. I knew another man who worked night shift as a security guard in a parking lot. He had very, very little. And yet, I've once again, I've never met someone so committed to helping others know the Lord. So committed to knowing the Lord and making Him known. A deep commitment that came from a deep contentment in Christ. I knew a family who fell upon very, very hard times. Their electricity was cut off. Their kids had to be pulled out of school. It was obvious to me when I met with them that they were not eating three meals a day. And yet, even so, even with that in their lives, every time I spoke to them, they communicated nothing but the deepest gratitude for God. Just, they just overflowed with thankfulness to God. Now, where does that come from? You can't fake that sort of thing. It came from a deep contentment in Christ. Contentment in Christ can even overcome the most severe material deprivations. He is always enough. In Him, we have someone who surrendered the riches of heaven to live a life of poverty and then die the death of a slave for us. 
in him neither famine nor nakedness nor death itself can separate us from the love of God. There is no greater poverty than death. At death you are stripped of everything. And it's a poverty that comes to us all. But if you know Christ, then like Job, you can fall on your face in worship and proclaim, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Poverty is one enemy of contentment, but there is another. And perhaps it's even more dangerous than poverty. And that's wealth. Did you notice, it's very strange, did you notice that Paul doesn't just mention learning the secret of contentment in times of poverty and need? He mentions the need to learn contentment in times of plenty and abundance. So he's living in a time of abundance, and yet he still needs to learn contentment. How does that work? Why would he say that? Because riches are also an enemy of contentment. You can have mountains of cash and still be utterly discontent. In fact, money often robs you of true contentment. How does that work? Well, remember what our Lord Jesus himself said. He couldn't be clearer. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot. We try. We try all the time. You cannot serve both God and money. If you are devoted to money, in your heart of hearts, you will be hating Jesus. That's what he says. That's not my opinion. It comes off the lips of the Lord Jesus himself. Either he will hate the one and love the other. So you cannot claim to love Jesus and also at the same time serve money. And since he's the only place to find true contentment, if you love and serve money, you will never be content, truly content. Of course, this applies to rich and poor people alike. You can worship money whether you have mountains of it or whether you have nothing. Rich people can be just as greedy as poor people. Poor people can be just as greedy as rich people. It's the same passion for more that lives inside of us. We are worshipping the same false god of mammon, whether he's cruel to us or kind to us. I think the danger for rich people is that we, and I say we, because stats SA would call us rich, whether we like to admit it or not. I think the danger for us is that it's harder for us to see our need for true contentment. We are blind to the reality. For the poor person, it may be easier to see that this God of money ignores them and enslaves them and, so, and is so inaccessible and so they might be more inclined to resign themselves to the need for something else. Not us, the rich. All too often, mammon, the God of money, is already on the throne of our lives. And once he's there, he's very hard to dislodge. 
We know this. He's a tyrant. He's a dictator. He's never satisfied. No amount of money is ever enough. And like any dictator, he clings to power. So while we live under the illusion of contentment, pretending to ourselves and to everybody around us that we are happy because we have our money, there's a deep-seated discontent that gnaws away at our souls. Now, some of you will not believe that that's true. You are probably thinking, stop preaching poverty to us, even though you're too polite to say it out loud. You might be inclined to say, as our young people say, if I'm going to cry, I would rather cry in a Ferrari and Egyptian cotton. (laughs) Here's the point. You will cry. The Ferrari will not be the end of your tears. Because that's the lie we're telling ourselves, isn't it? We say, I'd rather cry in a Ferrari, but what we really believe is that we're not going to cry at all. What we really believe is that the Ferrari comes with happiness included, like leather seats. And the Egyptian cotton is a coat of contentment. That's what we really believe. Money will make me happy. I'm not here to preach poverty. I'm here to preach contentment because that's what the Apostle Paul is preaching and that's what the Lord Jesus himself preaches. And contentment can only be found in him. You cannot serve two masters. The security, the peace, the sense of self-worth that we think is going to come with the Gulf estate can only come with him. Because, of course, the golf estate can go into liquidation. And the Ferrari can be repossessed. And fish moths are going to eat the Egyptian cotton. But if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? If God loves you, if you are His child, if you are going to spend eternity in glory with Him forever, then you can be utterly content. This life is nothing but a vapor. It's a mist. We're going to turn around and be in eternity with Him forever. So what, come what may, we can be content in this life. Nothing can rob you of your peace, your security, your identity in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Neither plenty nor need. Abundance or being brought low. Nothing. Nothing can rob you of your peace, your security, your identity in Him. Your material circumstances can change like the weather, but you have built your house on the rock and your house will stand. You have nothing to fear. All that means that if you do have money, and stats say remind us that we do, You won't worship it. You won't. In fact, because your satisfaction is in the servant king, you will use that money to serve others. It'll be your greatest joy to give that money away. You will know firsthand what the king means when he says it is more blessed to give than to receive. You will grow in your appetite for that blessing. That blessing, not the blessing of receiving, 
the blessing of giving. But that's next week's sermon. Let me try and just share some personal experience to drive this, this, this all home. I know uh, one or two very wealthy people. And in my experience, the iron law of wealthy people is this. If they are not in Christ, they are not content. They put on a big show of contentment. They are frantically running as hard as they can on that hamster wheel of experiences, trying to distract themselves from what? From the discontent that is gnawing away at their souls. They are desperate people because they just don't know what is going to happen when the music stops. And deep down, they do know that on that day, their money will count for nothing. You cannot insure against that day. Even on this day, they recognize that their money doesn't really make them happy. One specific example. I don't know this lady personally, but I have met her a few times. She's a brilliant lady. Brilliant. Top of all of her science classes at university. Could have made a real contribution to society. But then she inherited a fortune. Now, in any normal narrative, that would be a turning point for the good. Uh, But it isn't in this particular story. And when I say a fortune, I mean in the hundreds of millions of rands. She doesn't flaunt it. She doesn't squander it. She doesn't lord it over other people. But it has ruined her. It has ruined her. Because she has done nothing with her life. And those who do know her tell me that she is a slave to this restless sense of a wasted life. Not only did her money not give her contentment, it did the opposite. It robbed her of the possibility of contentment. If half a billion rand can't give you contentment, then whatever the number is that you and I are chasing is not going to give us contentment. On the other hand, I know of others in this church, some sitting here today, who have the gift of making money. Whether that's in their own business or in a successful career, they just have this gift of making money. But they give it away faster than they can make it. To fund Christian ministry, to fund this local church over 28 years, it's been funded by nothing but the generosity of God's people. To to help the poor, they give it away to help the poor. They give it away to build the kingdom. They can only do that because they are deeply content in Christ. It's the only way. Let me try and summarize what I've been saying as simply as I can. Some of us in this room, as we speak here this morning, some of us are worshiping money. The rest of us are being tempted to worship money. Money is a cruel master that is never satisfied. It leaves us with nothing but the empty, angry feeling of discontent. There is an answer. There is a way to be free. It's called contentment. Contentment can only be yours 
as it is learned over a lifetime of walking with Jesus, of finding freedom in Him, of finding satisfaction in Him. And when we do, when we walk that walk, when we satisfy ourselves in Him, it can even overcome the deprivations of poverty. It can even overcome the ugly enslavement of wealth. We can be truly free. We can be truly content in every situation through Him who strengthens us. Let's pray. Father, please will you help us. We, we come pleading for help this morning. Please set us free from worshipping the idol of money that has such a hold over us. Help us to recognize money as a good servant, but a terrible master, a cruel master, who promises us paradise, but only gives us slavery. Help us to learn contentment in Christ and in Christ alone. Help us to find our freedom, our security, our meaning, our identity, our purpose in Him. Help us to grasp the height and depth and breadth of your love for us in Christ Jesus. Spirit of God, help us to know just how much we are loved and that your love and your goodness far outruns our deepest aspirations and desires. Quench every thirst, satisfy every hunger, pour out your love into our hearts, fill our hearts to overflowing with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.